Well, last weekend, Bree and I had the opportunity to go out to Indiana and visit with my brother and his wife. And while we were there, we decided to go swing by Taylor University, where my cousin has just moved in the week before. And I was excited to go visit Taylor because I spent a couple years there during my college years. And so we were excited to go see her, see how she was doing settling in on campus. And you know, if you ever visit Taylor University, you have to go to this little ice cream place nearby called Ivanhoe's. Now, we went to Ivanhoe's. They got uh, all kinds of different ice cream. When I mean all kinds of different ice cream, I mean 100 different flavors of shakes and sundaes. It's, it's unbelievable, really. So we got dinner, and I grabbed the, the ice cream menu uh, for my wife and the, my cousin. And I set it on the table for them and said, all right, go ahead and pick what you want. I'm going to go stand in line for a little bit because everybody goes to Ivanhoe's. And as I'm walking away from the table, I turned back to him and I said, now, I know there's a lot of options, but I will say their strawberry shortcake is just phenomenal. I love the strawberry shortcake. It's my favorite. Now, the, the strawberries are sweet, and they, they add some sugar to them and really sweeten them up. They put some delicious ice cream right on top, and the shortcake itself, oh my goodness, I've never had anything like it. Oh, it's delicious when you take a, a spoonful that gets all three of those together and, oh, there's so much. The, oh, their strawberry shortcake's the best. Well, you know what everybody ended up ordering? The strawberry shortcake. All of us had Ivanhoe's strawberry shortcake, and everybody loved it. They had a great time eating it, and I was back in the glory days of college, just loving that time to be there, to be where I, what felt like home to me and eat some good old Ivanhoe's ice cream. Now, everybody took my word on that strawberry shortcake. It could have been terrible. It could have been disgusting. And you know how it is when you, when you share your experience with something. You hope that other people share that experience. And what happens in Psalm 34, which is where we're going to be spending our time today, is David is going to share his experience with others and with us. See, he had this experience with God that he is going to invite others to come to taste and see that God is good. Now, there are a lot of psalms that we aren't too sure about what the experience was, what was going on in the psalmist's life, what was going on in David's life, and sometimes we're not sure. But this psalm in particular, in Psalm 34, if you've not turned there yet, do there now. It starts out, before we even get to the actual verses, there's a note that tells us that this is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, this took place in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And what happened is, is David had been fleeing from Saul for his life, running for his life from King Saul, because Saul wanted to kill him. And David found himself at the, the doors of Abimelech, or Achish. Achish would have been the proper name. Abimelech would be like saying Pharaoh or, or Caesar, something along those lines. And so David's here now being brought before Abimelech. They recognize who he is, and they're saying, wait a minute, isn't this David, the one that they sing about, that David's killed his tens of thousands and Saul his thousands, right? This is the king. This is the real guy. And so David got scared. And what did David do? David says, it says in 1 Samuel 21, that David decided to act like a madman. Literally, he was scratching at the city gates. He was letting his spit run down his beard. He, he was acting like he had lost his mind so that Abimelech would actually turn to his servant and say, Look, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? Don't you know? I've got enough madmen around here. You're going to bring this guy here too. Get him. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. And so David would flee with his freedom. 
and later write this psalm, Psalm 34, where he would say that God is so good. And he would invite others to taste and see that God is good. We're all invited today to taste and see the goodness of God. And as we do so, we're going to be looking throughout this psalm. Now, the scriptures themselves have a lot to say about the goodness of God. Now, if you remember, John says in his gospel that all the books in the world couldn't contain all the wondrous deeds that Jesus performed, let alone to try to narrow down the goodness of God into one sermon is, is impossible to do. It's, it's so vast, so magnificent, we couldn't possibly fully come to understand it. So when we talk about the goodness of God today, we're going to talk about the goodness of God as David is describing it throughout Psalm 34. So we're going to stick pretty closely to this psalm. We're going to bounce around just a little bit. But as we begin to talk about God's goodness, if we ourselves today are going to taste and see that God is good, just like I invited my cousin and my wife, my brother and his wife, to taste and see that the strawberry shortcake at Ivanhoe's is the most delicious thing you'll ever taste in your life, David, too, is going to invite us to taste and see that God is good. So we need to stop and acknowledge what the realities of God's goodness are as David defines them. So we're going to start things out by recognizing as we look at to verse 5 that David says God's goodness is secure. His goodness is secure. Verse 5, he says this, Those who look to him, to God, are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now, I want you to think of that, that young person that maybe you know, or think back to when you were first falling madly in love with your spouse. And, and people would comment and say, well, you just have a certain glow about you. There's something about your life. You, you just seem happy. Well, that's what David is saying. Listen, those who look to God are radiant. They're not going to be disappointed. Verse 7, he goes on and he says that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Now, I want you to picture, when, when David talks about this angel in, in this camp, I want you to picture a, a sitting army around the camp of a king or around the city that would say, listen, we are safe and secure. Now, I know in, in our country right now, I'm not worried personally about foreign powers coming in and wreaking havoc on our streets because I trust that we've got a military that's protecting us. And David is saying, in a sense here, God's goodness is a security, a protection around his people. It is absolutely secure. And he would go on through verses 8 through 10 and say, listen, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Blessed is the man who takes, finds safety, security in the Lord. Fear the Lord as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. There's a certainty to walk with the Lord. Verse 10, he talks about young lions who suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David's telling us time and time again here, don't you see that the goodness of God is secured? There is a solidarity to it, a, a reliability to the goodness of God. It's absolutely secure. God's going to secure, but he goes on and he says also, if we look at verses 15 through 18, that God's goodness is strict. Now, listen, I know when I talk about God's goodness being strict, everything that comes up in your mind is negative. Because to us, strict is not a good thing. 
We think of that teacher that we had in school. We think of that uh, parent that maybe we feel is way too strict. We think of that boss who's always coming down on us. We, we think of being strict as a negative character trait. But in verses 15 through 18, David's going to stop us and he's going to say this, that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. So the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. So when I talk about God's goodness being strict, what I'm saying is that there is, as Scripture details it, righteous and wicked, good and evil. Never in the scriptures are we given the allotment for anything down the middle. It's one or the other. And David says that, listen, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous to protect, to preserve, to care for. And they're against the wicked. Why? Why does he say? To cut off the memory of them from the earth. See, God's goodness is strict. One commentary said this. What a sad and hopeless world it would be if there were no God to call upon, or that if God were a God who might or might not hear our prayers at all, if he were a God governed by emotions, that one day he hears the prayer of the righteous and the next day shows favor to the wicked, and then to neither at all, and who answers prayer according to no certain reliable rule. And what they're saying is, listen, it is a good thing that God's goodness is strict in the sense that he looks towards the righteous and against the wicked. Because if, if that were not the case, then we would have no reliability to turn to God at all. There would, be, there would be nothing that would give us certainty that God would hear our prayers, answer our prayers, would care for us, would look after us. There would be no promise of that at all. But if God truly is strict, then it gives us a certainty that when we are redeemed by his Son, he hears our prayers. When we walk and step with him, he responds. That God's looking out for us. That he has our good in mind, not necessarily just our enjoyment. So it's a good thing. It is a good thing that God is strict. Now, in his strictness, that doesn't mean he doesn't share good with the wicked. The scriptures say that God causes the sun to rise on the wicked and the righteous. So the rain would fall on both the good and the evil. God shows goodness to all, but we are thankful that his goodness is reliable because he's told us how he executes it. God's goodness is strict. Also, in verse 17 and 19, David indicates to us that God's goodness is sweeping. God's goodness is sweeping. Verse 17, in the second part of the verse, he says, and he delivers them out of some of their troubles. And verse 19, but the Lord delivers them out of most of their troubles. No. David says, he delivers them out of all of their troubles, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, when we talk about this, it's important to note that God's goodness doesn't prevent our troubles. It doesn't cause them to never come. As a matter of fact, the scriptures speak very clearly that we will face troubles in this life. And they will be troubles that are caused by ourselves at times. There are troubles that will be caused by other people in our lives. And there are troubles that may be circumstantial. 
I think even of Job, who faced many troubles because God gave permission for them to happen. See, nowhere in Scripture does it say that God's goodness will prevent trouble from happening to his people. But David here is proclaiming and celebrating the fact that God's goodness is sweeping as he delivers from all of our troubles. So I'm going to present to you the win-win. When we face troubles in this life, there is a win-win circumstance every single time. First win is that God physically delivers us from our troubles that we are facing in the here and now. Now, sometimes that doesn't take place on our timetable or doesn't take place in the way that we wanted it to happen, but God does deliver us from our troubles. That's win number one. Now, win number two is that there is a day coming in which we will be delivered from all of our troubles as we enter into glory with our Heavenly Father. I'm struck with Daniel chapter 3, where we're familiar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were asked to bow the knee to the idol of King Nebuchadnezzar. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. So, hey, we're going to throw you into this fiery furnace, and you will burn to death. And what is their response? If this be so, they say, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He's able to, and he's going to deliver us from your hand. Now, they never said it's just out of the fiery furnace. But if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, as believers, we adopt this mindset in our lives, and we need to. That God's goodness is sweeping, and we have hope and confidence in the fact that Though we may suffer in this life, we trust that God will deliver us from all of our troubles. Now, that may not mean that we experience that deliverance today or tomorrow or next month. But it does mean that we hope for the day that we will be delivered from all things. And so we have an excitement and a confidence as believers that we will experience God's deliverance whether now or in the day to come. God's goodness is sweeping, and we will experience his deliverance. Lastly, as David outlines God's goodness in this psalm, he reminds us that God's goodness is both singular and shared. It's both singular and shared. Now, it's singular in the sense of what he says in verse 4 and verse 6. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. David is saying, listen, God's goodness is singular because he cares personally about you. He hears your prayer, Christian. He hears your cries. He delivers you from your troubles. Now, that's an encouraging thought because we're not just another number. We're not just another person somewhere down the road that doesn't mean anything significant. God is listening to your prayers. There is a goodness there that God cares for us individually, intimately in the circumstances of our lives. God is good. But God's goodness is also shared in the sense that all throughout this psalm, 
David uses words like, come let us exalt his name together. Those, the thems. He uses words like uh, together and righteous, lumping into a whole group of people. See, there is a shared experience of God's goodness, even when God executes his goodness in a singular capacity. What do I mean by that? That when I experience the goodness of God in a singular way, when God answers my prayers and delivers me from my troubles, that I don't hold those things selfishly. But what David does here is he recounts his personal experience with God in which God heard him and delivered him and he invited others to come and to celebrate, to worship, and to lift up the name of God together with him. That's what we are to do as Christians. So we will honor and glorify God so that it becomes all about him, not just about us and our own circumstances and experiences in life. And so as we look at the realities of God's goodness, they demand response from us. When we experience God's goodness, we can't just simply go on living like we have. We must respond. And so how does David seemingly respond to God's goodness in his life? Well, first and foremost, he reveres God with his actions and his attitudes. And we should do the same thing. At the very beginning of this psalm, David says that I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And it's interesting here as David talks about the boast of his soul. Now, we boast about things in our lives, but we boast seemingly about pretty menial things at times. Things that have a momentary uh, glory for us, the, the, of significance in our lives. And we'll brag and we'll boast about our successes and, and our character traits that we may be experiencing. But when David speaks about boasting, he says that his soul's boast is not in himself. And now he could have boasted in himself. Remember the, the circumstance that he's talking about, referring back to, is him having this really witty and great idea that he's going to act like a mad lunatic to secure his freedom. And by the grace of God, it worked. And so he could have sat there and said, oh yeah, look at my genius plan. Look at what I came up with. Do you see what I did? How I really outwitted those people and secured my freedom? No. Instead, his soul's boast is in the Lord. So when he speaks of boasting... What he's referring to is that in which a man would value himself. Or in other words, what is perceived to be the greatest part of that man. So David is saying, listen, the greatest part of who I am, my boast, my all significance, my value is in the Lord, not in myself. Not in my plans, because maybe this plan worked, but the next one might not. My boast is in the Lord. One commentator said this, that this would be his chief distinction, that on which he would value himself. Of all things that we can possess in this world, the crowning distinction is that we have a God and that he is such a God as he is. 
What a distinction that we have a God and that God is who he is. That's what our boast is in. That's what sets us apart as Christians, that we have a God who is who he says he is, who is a good God, who is a gracious God, who is a merciful God. We have a great God. Let our boast be in him. And David goes on to say and to invite people and us with him to magnify and exalt God together. Now, let me ask you this. How are we supposed to magnify an infinitely magnificent God? How are we supposed to make higher the God who created all things and rules sovereignly over it all? How do we do that? The simple answer is this. We can't. We can't make God any greater than he already is. We can't elevate God to a higher place than he already is. So why does David give this invitation? See, this isn't an invitation for external purposes, for God, but for internal. That we would magnify and exalt God in our own perceptions, in our own attitudes, in our own realities. That we would make God greater in our lives that we would put him in the place that he rightfully deserves. That's what David's talking about here. So to magnify the Lord is to say, Lord, you are so great in my life. Here is how my life displays how magnificent you are. What in your life displays how magnificent God is? What in your life is giving credibility to how highly you exalt God? What demonstrates these things that others would see? Because see, from where our attitudes are, our actions will flow. If God's not made great in your life, your life's not going to look like it. But so often we start there. We start with the, the morality of things. And see, David, even in this psalm, later into verse 12 and 13, he starts to teach others about how to go about fearing the Lord. And so he says to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And see, we oftentimes start there. We start with the actions of life and we ignore the attitudes. And so then we run into problems down the road where it's just not jiving the right way. And we're reminded that our attitudes in our heart are of first importance. And from there flow the actions of our lives. At the Indian Creek campus, we talked a couple weeks ago from Proverbs chapter 4. About guarding your heart for from it flow the springs of life. It doesn't say guard the springs of life so you'll protect your heart. Guard your heart for from it flow the springs of life. If we are going to respond to God's goodness, we should revere him with our attitudes and with our actions. They should display just how great God is. But we should also recognize our own shortcomings. Verse 18, David says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. No doubt, many commentators believe that it's at this point David's thinking back to his experience where he just made a fool of himself. And his heart's broken over his own sin. And he's taking solace in the fact that God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. See, believers, as we focus on the magnificent, 
holy, pure God, it reveals our own shortcomings, our own blemishes, our own failures. And our failures and our shortcomings shouldn't leave us just feeling crushed, but they should point us back to the Lord. See, we so badly all the time want to deal with our actions, and our actions are so quick to fail us. See, it's because as we look at our shortcomings, I'm reminded of Paul in Galatians chapter 3 saying that the law of God, which, by the way, if you follow perfectly, we cannot do, but so many tried and they would become legalistic. And Paul is reminding the, the people in Galatia that the law was given as a tutor unto Christ so that we would be saved by faith. See, the law was to show us that we needed a Savior. And so as we look at the perfection of God, as we look at the requirements of His Word, and we realize how badly we fall short, it drives us to the point of recognizing that we need to repent, to bow the knee, that we need a Savior. We need Jesus, the one who came and died and rose again to deliver us from sin, to deliver us from death, to give us new life. We need him. So we need to recognize our own shortcomings as we come before the Lord. Now, we also reveal God's goodness to others. And that's really the heart of where this psalm is at. This is the heart of what David's doing throughout this entire psalm, is revealing God's goodness to other people. And now, when, when I'm talking about referring to other people, I'm not just talking about to the unbeliever, but I'm talking about sharing in God's goodness with other Christians. And so we, we um, reveal God's goodness to others in three particular ways as we see throughout this psalm. First, we inform them of God's goodness in our own lives. David has done this. We've looked at verses 4 and 6 where he talks of his own experience and how God has delivered him, how God has saved him from his troubles, and he shares that with others. Listen, look at the experience I've had with God. It's been a wonderful experience. I've seen God's goodness firsthand in my life. And I want you to taste and see that God is good as well. See, we need to pay attention in our lives to the goodness of God. And sometimes we wait for that really big, what we call God moment, to say, wow, look how great God is. And we ignore his goodness, uh, maybe even just out of ignorance, in the day to day. But I loved one commentary that said this. It says, if we have grateful hearts towards God, we shall let slip no occasion, which invites us to praise and honor him. Not only those that are new and surprising, that are unusual or extraordinary, but also the common and ordinary works of God and his constant and daily benefits. They will affect our hearts with a devout and thankful remembrance of him. See, we need to stop and we need to pay attention to God's goodness even in the mundane parts of our lives so that we can share and testify to it to other people so we can celebrate and worship God together. 
But to go on from that, we also invite them to experience God's goodness for themselves. See, oftentimes when we talk about an invitation as it relates to church, we invite people to come to church. We invite people to come to an event. And those things are great. We need to do that. But David here is inviting other people to come and to experience God's goodness for themselves. That they wouldn't just come experience a corporate gathering of God's people, but that they would come and experience God himself. There's an invitation throughout this passage as David explains the goodness of God that those who look to him are radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. Come and experience it. Come experience the security as the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Verse 8, blesses the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. He's talking to God's people here. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He's testifying, listen, these are security things that he's talking about. These are experiences of God's goodness. Verse 15, he goes on to say that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ear toward their cry. Experience these things. That God will deliver you out of your trouble. He is near you in your brokenness. Come and experience the goodness of God for yourself. Now, let me tell you of my experience and let me invite you to come and do the same. Just like I loved that strawberry shortcake from Ivanhoe's. But when I loved it so much, I didn't want to just not tell anybody about it. I told everybody about it. You guys got to try the strawberry shortcake. It's phenomenal. You'll love it. And we do it so often with TV shows, movies, places for vacation. We'll say, oh, I had a great time here. I loved this show. You should watch it. And it's easy for us to invite people to come and experience those things. We need to invite people to come and experience God's goodness as well. And lastly, we get to the point where David is instructing others how to experience it. So we share it. We inform people of our own experience. We invite people to come experience ourselves. But then we have to explain or instruct people on how they're to go about experiencing it. And when we do this, this is where we get into verses 13 and 14, as David gives some of that moral expectation, the moral instruction to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, there is a practicality to this. There's a practicality to the fact that David's saying, listen, you want to experience the goodness of God, don't be a liar. You want to experience the goodness of God, quit doing evil things and start doing good things. Because we happen to bring a lot of trouble on ourselves by our own sinful actions. And so when we instruct others on how to experience the goodness of God, we do deal with morality. We do outline the life that God has called us to. It's important. It's part of it. To follow God and to do things his way. Now, it would not make sense to say to experience all the blessings and goodness of God, but don't do anything the way that he said to do it. It just doesn't make sense. Morality is important, 
but it needs to be more than just morality, and we need to talk about redemption. And again, this is not just for the unbeliever. It's for the believer to remind others of our redemption, to celebrate it together. But when we do talk about redemption with an unbeliever, we need to talk about things like repentance. Verse 18, being broken and crushed in spirit. Now, what things are going to break us and crush us in spirit and what David is referring to in his experience, but his own foolishness. Many commentators believe that David did not act in righteousness when he made a fool of himself. Yet, in the midst of that, God was gracious and merciful that he still delivered him. And so we talk about redemption, being made new, purchased at a price. We talk about repentance, recognizing our sinfulness, turning from our sinfulness to follow the Lord. These are important things. And as we move to the end of this psalm, verses 20 to 22, David says that he keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David talks about the Redeemer. And we ought to talk about our Redeemer. There is one who has come to redeem us from our sins. To make things right. Jesus Christ. And we recognize that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's goodness. See, verse 20 says that he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. In John chapter 19, John says this, that since it was the day of preparation as Jesus hung on the cross, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. Verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. See, this psalm is referred to to identify our Savior, Jesus. He went to the cross. He laid down his life. His bones weren't broken. He's the Redeemer. He's the one so that he could bring forgiveness of sins that he could grant righteousness, extend grace, and extend mercy. See, it's in Jesus that we have the revelation of the character of God. Jesus is good. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is the one that it's all about. If we have tasted and seen that God is good, that cannot let us go on living as if nothing has happened, That is a goodness that when we taste it and see it, it changes our lives fundamentally in who we are, in how we interact with this world, how we worship God. When we experience His goodness, it demands a response. Now we're familiar with leaving reviews on products and places, 
We're familiar with telling friends and family about our experiences with a TV show or a place we went to visit on vacation. But I want to stop and ask you and challenge you now. Your life is a living, breathing review of the goodness of God. What kind of review are you leaving? Are you leaving a review that points the credit and the glory to God? Are you leaving a review that's inviting other people to come and to experience his goodness for themselves and telling them how to go about doing that? That's what David has done for us. And we have the blessing of getting to taste and see of God's goodness because so many before us have said it's worth it and it is good.